The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 40. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, and you shall put in it the ark of the testimony, and you shall screen the ark with the veil. You shall bring in the table and arrange it. You shall bring in the lampstead and set it up, set up its lamps. And you shall put the golden altar for incense before the ark of the testimony and set up the screen for the door of the tabernacle. You shall set the altar of burnt offering before the door of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and place the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. And you shall set up the court all around and hang up the screen for the gate of the court. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in it and consecrate it in all its furniture so that it may become holy. You shall also anoint the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils and consecrate the altar so that the altar may become most holy. You shall also anoint the basin and its stand and consecrate it. Then you shall bring Aaron and his sons to the entrance of the tent of meeting and shall wash them with water and put Aaron the holy garments. You shall anoint him and consecrate him, that he may serve me as priest. You shall bring his sons also, and put coats on them, and anoint them, as you anointed their father, that they may serve me as priests, and their anointing shall admit them to a perpetual priesthood throughout their generations. This Moses did, according to all that the Lord commanded him, so he did. In the first month in the second year, on the first day of the month, the tabernacle was erected. Moses erected the tabernacle. He, set its, he laid its bases and set up its frames and put in its poles and raised up its pillars. And he spread the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent over it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He took the testimony and put it into the ark and put the poles on the ark and set the mercy seat above on the ark. And he brought the ark into the tabernacle and set up the veil of the screen and screened the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the table in the tent of meeting on the north side of the tabernacle, outside the veil, and arranged the bread on it before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the lampstead in the tent of meeting, opposite the table on the south side of the tabernacle, and set up the lamps before the Lord, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put the golden altar in the tent of meeting before the veil, and burned fragrant incense on it, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He put in the place the screen for the door of the tabernacle. And he set the altar of burnt offering at the entrance of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting and offered on it the burnt offering and the grain offering, as the Lord had commanded Moses. He set the basin between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it for washing, with which Moses and Aaron and his sons washed their hands and their feet. When they went into the tent of meeting and when they approached the altar, they washed as the Lord had commanded Moses. And he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar and set up the screen of the gate of the court. So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night, and in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. This is the word of the Lord. Well, um, today feels a lot like what I would imagine crossing the finish line of running a marathon would feel like. I don't know what that feels like. I'll probably never know what that feels like. But if I had to guess, I think that this might be it, because we are concluding uh, a long series here in, through the book of Exodus. We've been in the book of Exodus since the beginning of September. So for the last, I think it's 42 sermons we've preached, 42 sermons to lead up to this one sermon right here. This is really the apex of the entire journey, the reason why we have studied Exodus for all this time. And if you remember... If you've been with us, and even if you haven't been with us, I'll kind of bring you up to speed on what's happened so far. There's been a lot of excitement and adventure in this book. When we, at the beginning of this book, we find um, God's people trapped in slavery in Egypt. 
And so God raises up this man named Moses to lead God's people, to redeem them from slavery and to bring them into freedom. But to do so, God unleashes these plagues on Pharaoh and his people, sort of loosening the grip. And then God leads his people in sort of a magnificent display of his power through the Red Sea, splits the waters the people walk through, and then God closes the waters and destroys their enemies as they try to pursue And then eventually, as they've crossed the Red Sea, they find themselves wandering in the wilderness because God has promised his people to to take them to the promised land. But to get to the promised land, there's this in-between period. There's this period of wandering that the the Israelites must go through. And in this this wandering period, God sort of reveals their hearts for kind of its natural state, where where they're at naturally, that, that really they've been embedded with the mindset and the loves of Egypt. And so it's in this wandering, in the, in the wilderness, that God is sort of rewiring or reprogramming his people to love rightly. And so in doing, God reveals himself um, at Mount Sinai. He, he sort of shows that God is more powerful than Pharaoh by demonstrating his glory and his power by descending down on Mount Sinai. There's an earthquake, lightning and thunder, trumpets blasting. The people see it and they're terrified. They get a glimpse of God and it's frightening because God is that powerful. He's that overwhelming. And it's there where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, which is are, are the, the commandments or the rules for holy living. And so God gives those to the people. The people take them, and we see them sort of wrestling through it. What does it mean to love God only and exclusively and entirely? And as they're sort of wrestling with the first commandment, what does it look like to love God with my whole heart, they find themselves failing at this one commandment. We, we see in Exodus 32 the golden calf incident where instead of worshiping God, they make for themselves their own God made of gold, one that they've crafted with their own hands in the shape and image of a calf. Now, this sort of brings us to the crux of, uh, of the book, right? What's going to happen here? The people have broken God's covenant that he's made with his people. Is God going to abandon them and walk out, or is God going to do something else? And what we see is that God moves toward them graciously, right? God reveals himself as, as this loving, uh, faithful, slow to anger, full of mercy and grace God, and he forgives the sins of his people and recovenants with them. And then what happens here after that is that God has given Moses these instructions because God's desire this whole time is to be with his people, right? That's the whole point of the Exodus story, that God would be among his people. And so God gives Moses these instructions to build this tabernacle, this tent, this dwelling place to be in the middle of his people and God would move in. And so we saw last week how how Moses gave the instructions to the people. They start doing this. And really what, what's happened up to this point, everything that's happened has led us to this moment here, the apex of the story, what's happening here in chapter 40 where God finally moves into the neighborhood and dwells among his people, right? This is the whole point of the book of Exodus. Without chapter 40, the book is incomplete. Now, how can this be? Right? We think of Exodus, we think of, oh, it's just God delivering his people, taking them from slavery and, and bringing them into a new life. How, how could it really be about the tabernacle? And I'll show you that the whole thrust of the book, the whole thing that God is communicating to his people is that deliverance or freedom isn't really freedom until you are led to worship. See, the point of Exodus is that everyone puts their ultimate hope in something. Everyone finds their identity in something. That thing is whatever's most important in your life, right? And whatever that thing is, you serve. So if it is not God, then you are still a slave. Even if it isn't Pharaoh, then you are stuck in slavery. And it's only when God is the most important and central thing in your life are you really set free. See, until you get to worship, you're still a slave to something. 
See, this is why chapter 40 is the climax. The tabernacle is the center of worship. See, for the story to be complete, Israel has to move from captives of Pharaoh to being captivated by the one true God. See, a captive is someone who's contained by force, right? These people in Israel, when they were in Egypt, they were contained by force. They weren't able to let, be let go. But God breaks their captivity, and in doing so, they become captivated by who God is. They become enchanted. That's the definition to, to be captivated, is to be enchanted by beauty or by excellence. So they, they see God for who he is, and there is this overwhelming sense of, of infinity, affinity for God. So in other words, it's an increasing worship of God that liberates us from the bondage of sin and its slavery. This is the reason why this book is so relevant today, 3,500 years later, that the scenarios are different, the names, the times have changed, but God's objective is still the same. God wants to free his people from the bondage of sin for the purpose that they would worship him and enjoy him and be with him. So he wants to to free us as captives from our sin so that we could be joyfully captivated by who he is. Again, this is the ultimate goal in Exodus, that people find the true freedom by worshiping God and enjoying him forever. This is for this objective to be met. The people need a relationship with God. They need to be near him. Just like any other relationship, any other healthy relationship in your life, proximity is a key piece of that. Right? There are not too many marriages that are thriving when they're living in two different homes or across the country. Right? Even when we have our best friends and maybe we've grown up together, we have this strong bond, there's still this need to be in close proximity together. Right? Those, that's why those reunions are so special. And so knowing this, God constructs this tabernacle, this dwelling place, which, which is a sign of God being with us. See, the tabernacle is a way for God to be close to us. Now, for God to be close to us, there are some major stipulations, right? The temple had very specific instructions. We saw that in chapters 25 through 30, and again in 35 through 39, where God lays out all these very intricate details about how to build the tabernacle. In fact, 10 chapters of the 40 chapters of of the book of Exodus are devoted to this thing of how to build the tabernacle. That's 25% of the book of Exodus. And so we saw back in 35 through 39 last week when we looked at those chapters, the pieces of the tabernacle are being carefully crafted according to these very specific instructions. And now, in our passage today, it's time to put it together. Take a look at verse 1 here. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the month, you shall erect the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. So here we are. God said, hey, all the the pieces are in place. The people have put them together according to my specifications, and now it's time to construct this tabernacle. And so verses 3 to 8 go on and and, and tell how Moses starts putting these things together. And and what you notice here is Moses is building it from the inside out, that he starts with the Ark of the Covenant and works his way outside until he finally constructs the courtyard of the tabernacle. And what is so significant about this is that Moses starts with the most important part of the tabernacle. The most important part of the tabernacle is where God's presence will be, right there on top of the Ark of the Covenant. That God will be right there in the Holy of Holies. That's where God's presence will be. See, this is the geographical location where God's presence will burn white hot that no other place on earth will have as much presence of God, though he is omnipresent and everywhere, there is a a, a white-hot presence of his being. And it's called the Shekinah glory. Now, Shekinah glory literally means his causing to dwell. Right? This is God's dwelling glory, his near glory. 
And what this is, it's represented by a visible manifestation of the invisible God. And what we'll see here in our, in our text here, and, and actually throughout the course of, of Exodus, is that God's glory has been represented either in, in a, an appearance of a cloud or a pillar of fire, that there's a radiance to that location. And again, God is creating this tabernacle to show that his presence is here with his people and it's dwelling in the Holy of Holies. Now, in order for God to dwell with his people, there's more than just assembly that needs to happen. It's more than verses 3 through 8 where, where the construction is actually happening. That what is made needs to be set apart. It needs to be consecrated. See, when you see a word or phrase repeated in Scripture, it's stressing the importance of something. If you were to just look through verses 9 through 15, 11 times in these six verses does God command an anointing or consecration of the pieces of the tabernacle. Now, when something is consecrated, it's set apart for a specific duty, a specific task. Now, think, think of this in terms of your toothbrush, right? Your toothbrush is used for a very specific task every day, hopefully, maybe twice a day. Now, you don't take that toothbrush, and you don't use that to clean the grout in your kitchen, Right? You don't use that toothbrush to clean around uh, the bathroom in different places. Right, You have set that apart. You've designated it for a specific use. And so God does the same thing here with this tabernacle, that this tabernacle is not like any other tent. This tabernacle is not like any other. It does not have a, a table in the same way that you have a table in your kitchen. It's set aside for a very specific purpose. Those things, that purpose here is for matters of holiness. Take a look at verse 9. Then you shall take the anointing oil and anoint the tabernacle and all that is in, in it and consecrate it and all its furniture so that it may become holy. See, to consecrate something, to set it apart. Now, holy, to be holy, something to be holy means to be set apart itself as well. So these, this, everything that's in the tabernacle is set apart for a specific purpose. We see the, the table, we see the, the curtains, we see the altar, we see the candle stand, all of these things anointed. We even see Mo, or Aaron and his family anointed to be the priests, the people who will enter into this tabernacle on behalf of the people, that they are set apart for a specific task. And as we move on through Verses 16 through 33, again, we see the same principle of the repetition of words. We see this as the Lord commanded, as Moses completes the tabernacle. Moses did it as the Lord commanded. Seven times does he note it, that, that this precise obedience was required in order to make this tabernacle a reality. In order for God to be with his people, there is a need for precise obedience. And then finally, after 10 chapters of instructions, we see here, verse 33, says that Moses finished the work. This project is finally completed. And if you were with us when we were going through the different pieces of the tabernacle, everything is super intricate. Everything has a purpose. Everything has a meaning. In fact, I've got a slide to kind of just show, give you a visual of what this tabernacle looked like. Now, in comparison to a football field, it's, it's maybe it's a little less than a quarter the size of a football field. But inside this tabernacle, everything is very intricate, um, starting the Holy of Holies up at the top left corner there. Everything's laced with gold and the finest linens. And then you move out, it's out into the holy place that's still part of the tabernacle on the inside there. And it's laced with silver. And then as you move out into the courtyard, um, you see the altar and the tables and, and the, the washing basin. All of this is very specific, very detailed, very intricate. Moses followed this precise instructions, and now it is finally completed. And this tabernacle, 
What we see later on in this passage is tabernacle would be broken down and disassembled and reconstructed each time God would move his people from one location to the next. That this would be a sign that God was with his people right there in the midst of them. And this is the way that it was up until the people of Israel finally had their own land and they were able to build the temple, which would be around the 10th century B.C., so this tabernacle that we see, very intricate, very detailed, was later on replaced by the temple. But this was the place where God's glory would dwell. Take a look at verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, all of Exodus is laid out for this one verse right here that God would move into the neighborhood, the bee would be right there among his people. But you might be wondering here, with all this talk of the tabernacle, even in reading through, as Elizabeth did a great job of reading through the scripture here, why all of this stuff? Why the tabernacle? What's the purpose of it? What does it accomplish? And before I answer that question, I want to point out that every civilization, every culture up to this point has had an equivalent. Every culture has had a shrine, a location, uh, or something like this tent or tabernacle or the temple because every culture up until present has believed in two things. The first thing that they believe that there is a world beyond this one, right? There's a natural world and there's a supernatural world, that that there is a physical world and there is a, a spiritual world. Right? They believe that out there is a truer reality. Now, the second thing that every other culture has believed up to this point is that there is a barrier between these two worlds, that there is a gap to bridge or a chasm or, or a barrier or a door to get through in order to access that other reality. Now, there are certainly disagreements between different religions and cultures and societies on the specifics and the execution of these beliefs, but these two fundamental fundamental beliefs exist except for the modern time. See, one scholar says that modern Western civilization is the first civilization in history that said, you don't need to know anything about that other world in order to live effectively and account for this world. See, the general view of the West is that I can live in this world without a concern for that other world that may or may not be out there. See, that means that everything in this world if we were to, to take the modern view that everything in this world has a reason, that everything in this world has a logical reason that can be accounted for according to the realities of this world. And I don't want to get too carried away with this because really a lot of this, this mentality will be addressed in, in next week's series when we start this hard to believe. Um, as we dig into this question, hasn't science disproven Christianity? We'll dig deeper, even deeper into this issue. But, but I want to say here is that that deep down, everyone, even those people who have this modern view of the world, has a longing for this other world that's out there. Why? Why can I say that? Well, because this world doesn't satisfy our deepest longings and desires. That even if we have everything in this world, we are still left wanting. There's constant conflict, right, personally and globally. There's injustice, sickness, death, financial strain that always leaves us discontent among a slew of other reasons. See, so there's something about our condition right now in this world, the way that it is in its brokenness, that's preventing us from experiencing this optimum life that we desire and crave. And you might be like, yeah, I, I can relate to that a little bit. I, I feel that craving a little bit. But, but if I had this one thing, right, then maybe that, I think that craving would go away. Or if I had this other thing. And I'm going to tell you, that, that's not true. Some of the most successful people in the world are still left wanting. Right? Take Tom Brady, for example. The dude, Super Bowl champion, football icon, 
I mean, he's, he's got all kinds of professional accolades. He's got a supermodel wife. He's got great kids, makes buttloads of money. I don't know if I can say that. Makes a lot of money. And you know what? He, he was interviewed maybe a couple years ago. And he says, you know what? I've, I've won a Super Bowl. I've got a great wife. I've got a great family. I've got money. I've got all these things. You know what? And I still feel like there's something out there. See, that, that inner desire for that other world compels us. Whether we know what it is or we don't. See, embedded in all of us is this undeniable, an undeniable desire for a better, truer world, a place that is good, right, and perfect. One that satisfies not just some of our desires, but all of our desires, that offers us this optimum experience of life. Now, if we were to follow the thought of the modern world, logically and to its furthest degree, what we would find is that they would tell us that these desires are wrong because there is not an explanation for those desires in this world. Right? Because there is not something here in this world that can meet these desires and longings that our desires must be off. Therefore, what they would say is what happens here in this world is the best that it gets. This is all that we have to look forward to. And in a way, this outlook, when we go to the furthest degree of logic, we see that it's really void of hope. But on the other hand, if we were to acknowledge our desires for this other world and say, well, what, where does this come from? Well, C.S. Lewis says that if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. This means that our desires aren't misplaced, that we don't need to explain away our desires and get rid of them. It just means that we're currently on the incomplete side of reality. Now, the tabernacle, this tabernacle, just like the other tabernacles or, or whatever the cultural equivalent would be like in other religions, this tabernacle offers a gateway into the, relig- into the reality with a capital R, the true reality. It's a portal into this other world. See, Scripture tells us this other world isn't so much a location as it is being in the presence of God. Psalm 16 says, In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. And what this is saying, that in the presence of God, all the deep voids that we are left with in our hearts are filled when we are in God's presence. This means all the pleasures, all the joys, all the beauties, and all the loves that you have or have ever sought after are just dewdrops compared to this, which is the ocean of delight. Now, if we put two and two together here, if we see that, that this other world is in the presence of God, and we take what we know about the tabernacle, we see that this world is right there in the Holy of Holies. That's the access point. That God is there in the Holy of Holies, therefore the access to this other world is right there. And by design, the tabernacle is made to give us access to God. It, it gives us a way into his presence. It doesn't just barricade us off and say, well, God, here God is in the middle, and he sort of put a, a fort around himself so you can still see him and, and know that he's there, but you don't really have access to him. No, no, no. The tabernacle actually gives us access into the Holy of Holies. If you want to put that illustration back up, the, the tabernacle, and I'll walk you through this. See, in order to get to the Holy of Holies, which is up there in the top left corner there, you've got to walk through this entrance curtain on the right-hand side of the road, on the, on, the, on the screen here. You've got to walk in, and you've got to make your way past the altar. And then you, you go beyond that, and you go to, the, to the, the basin, the washing basin. And then beyond that, there's a curtain that you've got to get past. And then there's a candle stand and a table and, and another place of incense and then after that's another curtain to finally get into the Holy of Holies. Now all of these things that you have to move past, 
All of these things that you have to walk by in order to get to the Holy Holies are barriers. They're roadblocks into getting into this other world and experiencing the Shekinah glory, this place where joy and delight burns white hot. See, what the tabernacle tells us is that there is a way into God's presence, but it also tells us that there are barriers. There are things that are getting in the way. Now, some people look at this and think that this is so primitive to have to account for all these barriers, right? If we want access to God, we should just walk right in, cut the superstition and just walk right in, go past the altar, go past the basin, go right into the Holy of Holies. See, in modern thought, this is, this is the idea that I don't have to do anything special for God, right? That, he can just, that he'll just hear my prayers, that I can be the way that I am, and, and, and have access to him in that capacity. But in order to do that, you, you have to strip God of his holiness, See, if you were to just walk right in and strut up to God, what you have to do is strip him of his holiness, right? This is God's complete otherness, the key distinctive that distinguishes God for who he is and how he's different from us. See, and if you strip God of his holiness, you just make God more like you. You are essentially ungodding God, as if that could be possible. See, if we want a real God, if we want access to a real God who's actually helpful, not a a fairy tale or or made-up God, we have to understand the true God. And when you begin learning about the true God of the Bible, you will learn very quickly that God isn't like you, that God is exponentially more powerful than you can imagine, that he's more splendid, more beautiful, and he's far more dangerous than you could imagine. So you were told that God is holy, that he is different. Even when Moses experiences God at, at the burning bush, at the very beginning of the story, God says, you can't come any closer. Why? Well, because God is holy. He is a consuming fire. And that's even represented at Mount Sinai. When God's presence comes down on the mountain, he tells the people that you cannot come up the mountain, otherwise you'll be destroyed. There is something about God and his holiness that destroys everything that is unholy. So therefore, these barriers are not so much to keep us out because God's being stingy, because God's holding out on us. Rather, these barriers are put there to protect us from being destroyed. And the closer we get to God, the more we realize that there are barriers the the more accurately you see God for who he is, the more internally you see, I am not like that. There's something about me that's corrupt. There's something about me that is very unholy. We feel these barriers. a, A Christian who has a vibrant faith, though they are growing in godliness, they will have a growing awareness of the chasm between God and themselves. They'll see that there are barriers there. But even so, there is still a longing to be in that holy of holies place. We see the barriers. We see what's on the other side of the barriers, and we have a desire to go in and to to, to quote C.S. Lewis again. He says, Our lifelong longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off To be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no more, not mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. The sense that in this universe we are strangers, the longing to bridge some chasm that that yawns between us and reality. See what he's saying here is that that we see this, we see this gap. We see this barrier. We see this door between us and what we desire, and we have a desire to be on the other side of it. See, there's this door that you've been knocking on all your life, a door into the truer reality that you are trying to access. 
And the Bible actually gives account for this in Genesis. It says, in the beginning, God created this perfect world, right? That at one point, humanity was on the right side of the door. That we got to experience the fullness of God's presence. That we, we knew what it was like to flourish, to be in the glory. That place was called Eden. And in the Garden of Eden, man was face to face with God. This unmedi- unmediated undiluted presence because everything was right. Everything else was right, not just with our relationship with God, but every other relationship was right, the cultural, the spiritual, the psychological and social relationships. Everything was good, right, and perfect. There were no pains, no heartaches, no trials that this world has here. But all this perfection that was in Eden changed when humanity decided that we were going to be our own lords, that we were going to be our own gods, and said, away with you, God. We'll do it according to our own. And when that happened, everything fell apart. This is why we call it the fall, because everything in creation started to crumble apart. And that was the moment when this chasm between God and man became a reality. Because of our sin and rebellion, we lost the perfection that God made for us to live in. And then so we feel now the pinch of separation from God that, that our sin has distanced us from this Shekinah glory, that our sin has kept us from this truer reality. And this isn't just a, a perceived separation, but, but Genesis actually shows us this is a physical se- separation as well, that Adam and Eve were physically removed from the Garden of Eden. And, and God led them out of the Garden He put a cherubim, an angel, not just some sort of like chubby little angel that you imagine at at Valentine's Day, but but a a warrior of light. And he gave him a sword and and he said, protect this door so that Adam and Eve could not access the garden anymore. So so there is this this door, this, this, this point into, a portal into this true reality. Now Adam and Eve are cut off from it. The access has been denied. Now, God could have easily ended the story here, but he doesn't because God has been the way that he is now since eternity past where he tells us that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, and he is willing to forgive. See, God moves toward his people in giving them the tabernacle. This tabernacle is essentially like a time machine, if you will, to to go back to Eden to go back to this place of perfection, to recall. Well, just think, if you remember a few weeks back when we were looking at the design of the tabernacle, there was something very specific about the way the candle stand was made, that it had these leaves, and, and, and it's designed to be like a tree, right? This, this garden imagery, and the cherubim, right? The, the, the tabernacle is filled with images of cherubim, so this tabernacle, everything in it, from, from the cherubim to the candle stand, it, it all is supposed to point us toward this picture of Eden. And what is saying God here? God's saying here that there is a way back into this place of perfection that you're longing for. That this world, with all its brokenness, wasn't made to satisfy, and the tabernacle is that portal back into Eden. See, it would be so easy to reduce this tabernacle down to a little tent or, or a little um, mosque or, or religious center. But in reality, the tabernacle is the way to the heart of the universe. When you realize how incredible this is, the significance of the tabernacle, giving you access to the, this, this true reality that, that lies beyond that door, you'll see that this tent, this tabernacle, isn't the true thing. It's not the true portal that God is promising. See, when you follow this narrative uh, of the tabernacle, God's dwelling place throughout Scripture, what you see is that the tabernacle will eventually be replaced by the temple, And the temple will be destroyed not once, but twice. And so this shows us something here. 
It shows us that this frail building, however glorious and, and intricate that it is, it cannot contain something so epic that this building, this dwelling place, can only point to something greater. And many of us have maybe connected the dots already. What it's pointing to is Jesus. Now, most people will say that Jesus was a good moral teacher, right? He gave us the golden rule, taught us to help the poor, and on and on and on. But Jesus said some pretty outrageous things. In fact, a couple of these things ended up getting him killed. See, the Jewish people understood the significance of the temple. They understood the tabernacle and what it represented. And so when Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up again, that was offensive to them. Because what Jesus is saying here, he's saying that I am the true temple, that I am the way back to God. I am the access point to glory. It's not this building, it's me. And we see this explicitly in John's gospel where he tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt, if if you look at the Greek, it's another word tabernacled. That God tabernacled among us in flesh. See, unlike the previous dwellings where God's glory moved into, when Jesus was destroyed, he was resurrected. See, Jesus was indestructible. Jesus wasn't just claiming to be the way to God, but Jesus was claiming that he was God. That, in fact, he was the one that was full of glory. Now, just with a minute, go, go back to, to Exodus 40 here. Exodus 40, 34. And then the cloud covered the tent meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of the meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. See, God's glory here is burning white hot and Moses can't get in, right? All the story is working up to this one point and here Moses is stuck outside of the tabernacle. He can't get in because it is filled with glory. Think of it like a cup, Right, You fill a cup up to the brim. You can't fit anything else in it. God's glory was so filled in that space that there was no room for Moses to go in. See, what John tells us is that Jesus was like that tabernacle, that he himself was filled with glory. He says, Jesus was filled with glory as of the Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So what we see that Jesus is both the glory, right? He is the Shekinah glory and the way back to glory. That Jesus is the truer reality and the portal to the truer reality. That he is the doorway between the two worlds. But remember back in the garden, right? There's that sword that's dividing the two worlds. And so the only way to get into that truer reality is to go under the sword. Now, in the tabernacle, the high priest was given access to the Holy of Holies once a year. Yom Kippur was the day that it was called. It was a very special day where once a year the high priest could go into to the Holy of Holies. And to do so, in order to allow that person to go in, blood had to be shed. Someone had to pay for all the failures, pay for all the sins, pay for all the wrongdoing of the people in order to give that man access to God in that way. And so the only way back into that reality, into that place, was through the sword. Blood had to be shed, and an animal had to be sacrificed. Now, when in the Gospels, when we get to the point of, of Jesus' crucifixion, all of, uh, uh, of the authors of the Synoptic Gospels use imagery of the temple, of the tabernacle, of sacrifice to explain what's going on here. He's telling us that Jesus was the one who went under the sword, that Jesus was the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. And so Jesus put himself out. He put himself up on the cross. 
He become, became the one that was slain to offer forgiveness and pardon for those who are sinners. As Jesus was going under the sword, he said something similar to what Moses said upon finishing the temple. He said, it is finished. See, Jesus finished even in a truer reality than what, what Moses was doing at the tabernacle, that he was, he was building that, that tabernacle for God's place or his glory to dwell. Jesus said that, I have done that. And as Jesus breathed his last and gave up his spirit, the thick curtain that was now in, in the temple, sealing off the Holy of Holies, was torn from top to bottom. This, this is not just a small little uh, uh, curtain that you have in your living room. This is a four-inch thick curtain, reinforced, torn from top to bottom. And what that meant, is that Jesus, by his life, death, and his resurrection that would be coming, now gave everyone, all his people, access to God. So it's not just the high priest anymore that has access once a year. It's everyone who has access to God all of the time for those who have been covered in Christ's blood. And in light of this, the author of Hebrews tells us that we have great confidence. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have great priests over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil and evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He's saying that, that the confidence of, of true Christianity does not rest upon our moral efforts or our ability to do good, to get in God's presence. And vice versa, our hope isn't squelched by our sins and our failures. He's saying that our confidence and our hope rests in the finished work of Jesus. And that finished work of Jesus consecrates us. It sprinkles us clean. It sets us apart for God. See, this is how Christianity is different from every other religion. All the other religions say, do good to get in. Work hard, do good works. But Christianity says that Jesus did good for me because I was incapable to do it. And because of what he has done, I am able to get in. See, if you understand that Jesus is the true tabernacle, you get that. That he had to go under the sword for you because you were not able to have that access. So Jesus he is the priest. He is the sacrifice. He is the glory. That Jesus is God. And when he says he, it is finished, it is, he means that it is finished. And so this means that all of the good that Christians do, it, it's done on the way out, not on the way in. See, all the good that Christians do, uh, it's done in response to have been already accepted by God. And so we respond in worship through obedience and praise. And it's out of this deep gratitude for what Christ has done that we're led to worship and exult. As a people who are anchored in the gospel of grace, as a people who now have access to God through Christ, something is happening here with us. That Jesus is building us together. He's putting us together to be this new dwelling place for God. In Ephesians 2, 19, Paul says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You're no longer on the outside of the door. But you are fellow citizens. You are on the inside with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple for the Lord. In him, you, church, also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, one day, God in all of his fullness will move in 
to his people, that he's putting us together. He's assembling us together to be this dwelling place. And so that means right now, God is putting his church together. The building is underway. And with just as much concern and care and detail that that he gave Moses, he is giving us. He's making us beautiful. Right now, brick by brick, piece by piece, he's making us a dwelling place for himself. In the process of this, of becoming more beautiful in Christ, of becoming a place for God to dwell, is a lifelong journey. And even the end of Exodus can attest to this because it doesn't end with a rival language. The last word in the book of Exodus is journey. See, one day there will be this arrival moment, but even now, even for Israel as they're finishing the saga here, there's more adventure, there's more journey ahead. And so the promise of Exodus, as it concludes, is that wherever we go, God is near to us in Christ. That whatever God is doing among his people, Christ is here with us now, and we have the assurance of God's presence and guidance along the way. So every week, we come to be reminded of this. We come to God's word to sink our teeth in and to digest what God is telling us and how he's instructing us and how he's leading us and how he's near to us in Christ. And every week, we are sent back out as his people with a promise of the benediction that where we are going, God is leading us. This is the promise of Exodus, that God has come that he's here, and he's going with us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you how you point us toward Jesus and that he was the true tabernacle, that he was the access point to this reality that we long for. So, Father God, would you instruct us in how to, to be a people who enter through that gate, enter through the door? Would you help us to trust in Jesus, not on our own good doing, not in our good deeds, not even in our failures that might disqualify us, but, Father, that we would trust in Christ and what he has done to give us access to you, to be brought into your glory and to share that with you forever and ever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.